Would you open your Bibles tonight to three passages, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Colossians 2, and Galatians 5. If you'll look at those three passages, and we'll get started tonight. We're going to do a new series. It'll last the rest of the year and probably into next year. So that's good. We're going to talk about the Sermon on the Mount. It is a necessary Subject, I think I've taught on it every 10 years. It's the kind of a teaching that by the time your children get to be old enough to learn, they need to hear this. They need to deal with it and get a hold of it because this will not go away. But leading up to that, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, a familiar verse to all of you, it says, For we walk by faith and not by sight. And I want to put some emphasis on the word walk there. And then in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6, it says, As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. And then in Galatians chapter 5, the other verse, if you walk in the Spirit. So there are three particular verses, there are many more than this, but I've just picked these three to tell you what you already know, that the Christian life is a walk. And by the word walk, we're referring to how you choose to live. Your lives tonight are based on the choices you have made. You've heard something, you've either believed it and chose to do it, or you've heard it, didn't want to do it, chose not to. We are all tonight where we have chosen to be, all of us. No matter what we've heard, no matter how far we've been a Christian, we've all lived by choices. And the choices we have made is where we are tonight. God wants us to live by choices. It's the way we're supposed to live. Those choices are quite simple. He said, this is the way, walk ye in it. The Bible is God's prescribed way for us. The Sermon on the Mount condenses it into a form at which few people I've ever known really want to hear it all. Or if you read the Bible or you do hear it, it seems like something on the inside of you always gets pricked. It's something always gets bothered by things that are said there. But how can we walk the way Jesus wants us to walk? Or how can we walk in the Spirit? Or how can we believe and walk differently than what God says? Now, I know none of us are perfect yet, and I know we've all drug our feet a lot, maybe still are, or we've made mistakes, fallen backwards, but we're not done yet. God isn't through with us. And while he chose us in this fleshly body, weak as it is, he has given us his spirit so that we can be stronger than we were. So the way we live depends on the choices that we make, but live we must. And at the end of this journey that we're in tonight, whenever it ends, we will all have to stand before God and give an account for the choices we have made in life. I'm sure all of you, I can speak for myself, I've made some good ones. I've made some that were not so good. I am thankful to God I've had a chance after having made some bad choices in my life to have been given time to live longer so that I could fix that and let God fix it so that I can live the kind of life that God wants me to live. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. That's where the next several months' teaching will come from. Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, 
in chapter 7. Tonight is going to be nothing more than an introduction. The Sermon on the Mount gives us the kind of principles that God wants his people to live by and aspire to. Now, we're not under law. The word law is used quite a bit in the New Testament, but the New Testament is more of principles instead of laws. A principle is a comprehensive and fundamental assumption that is a rule of conduct or a code of conduct. A principle is, in effect, showing us how we should live and conduct ourselves. The Word of God is given to you. It is made clear to you by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, this is the way to live. Now, a law, you didn't have to have a heartfelt relationship to God. For example, when it came to sacrifices, you merely went and found an animal and had it checked and you took it to the Lord. Not that your heart had to be in it, but it's the fact that law requires duty or obedience to it. But when Jesus comes along, he begins to take, in this sermon here, this one we're going to study, he begins taking those laws, and most Christians still like to live by laws. They still like rules and routines and all of that, and figure if they do this and do that and do this and do that, then I have done what the Bible said. It's not so much a relationship, because Christianity is a relationship. And what we live by in the New Testament is not some legal code, but it's those words that, you know, when we're led by the Spirit, whom Jesus said when he comes, he will show you things to come. He brings revelation from God. He opens your eyes and your heart. And he shows you that while the law has been set aside as a means of being right with God, you are now required to obey the Lord from your heart. For he that knoweth to do good... And doeth it not to him it is sin. Under the law, you just needed to know what the law was. But in the New Testament, when God shows you the way to live, he might say something to some of you here tonight he hadn't said to others. And how many of you know that whatever he says to you is between you and God, and that's the right choice for you to make? you got to live the way he shows you to live. Because he that knoweth to do good and doeth it not to that particular person, it is sin. So when we read this, we're reading about principles. These are things that we point out. These are teachings in the New Testament. These are the most profound teaching in perhaps the whole Bible, at least in the New Testament. The Ten Commandments is the major pinnacle of the Old Testament, was God describing to his people the way he wanted them to be. But there were no provisions made if you messed up. You know, the first four Ten Commandments, uh, the first four had to do with your relationship to God. No other gods, no images, don't take his name in vain, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And then from 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10, it talks about your relationship with other people. Honor your parents, don't lie, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness against your neighbor, and don't covet. That was the law. This is the way to live. But it left out any possibility for a man, if he's broken any of those laws to be made right, and everybody breaks them. There's not a soul that hasn't. It's just like adultery. You say, well, I never ran around on my wife or my husband. Did you ever look upon a woman to lust after her? This was the deeper principle of the New Testament that Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. 
You're not free because you haven't run around, though you've lusted after this one or that one, and boy, you watched stuff that makes you lust and all of that. You're as guilty as though you had done it. I said, well, that's not fair. This is the Sermon on the Mount. It leaves nobody alone. Nobody finds a comfort zone in the Sermon on the Mount. For there is something here that every time you hear it, it's like God speaking to you, convicting you of something in your life. It's as though we're never quite where we ought to be yet. We're going. But there's always room for improvement. But that's the Sermon on the Mount. Is thou shalt not kill, for example, in the Ten Commandments. Jesus said, if you're angry with your brother without a cause, the same kind of a spirit that would kill a man is present with you. You're guilty by the fact that it's in your heart. You're guilty because that desire is in there. It may not be expressing itself in the act yet, but the desire is there. And because the desire is there, you seethe about it, you talk about it. Or you want to do harm to other people when you should turn the other cheek. It's all a revelation of your heart. And as I said, the Sermon on the Mount is probably the most profound teaching in all the Bible. We are to be governed by it. And people who tell us, well, that's not possible. Well, if it wasn't possible, then Jesus has asked us to do something that we can't do, and that's not fair. But let me run through the outline of this before we finish up tonight. Let's take a little time here and, and look at Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and just point out the various subjects, the various things that we're going to be covering in detail. He begins with, in chapter 5, beginning in verse 3, the Beatitudes. And these Beatitudes, there's nine of them. Some say there's only eight. They equate verse 10 and 11 together. But I make two different ones out of them. It's not a big deal. But Beatitude, these are called blessings. The word blessing is where we get Beatitude from. And blessed means blessed. You're blessed. I found it interesting today that one Greek dictionary ascribed to the word blessed, the word having found approval, like of God. And I began to read some of these with that same idea. I said, a man who is meek has the approval of God on his life. Those who are poor in spirit has the approval of God on their life. Now, we can describe blessings as, you know, just money. But he's not talking about that here. He's talking about something else. These beatitudes have to do with principles of character. The kind of person you are that the rest of this sermon will follow from if these traits are in you. And he mentions like poor in spirit in verse 3. Blessed are those that mourn in verse 4. Blessed are those who are meek in verse 5. In verse 6, it's those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. These are the ones you can't keep out of church. These are the ones who want to be there. They have the sense of need in their life. They do recognize that they don't have more than they need spiritually. They are, in effect, poor in spirit. And we'll look at that more. There's nothing haughty and self-righteous about them. 
They don't seem themselves as having arrived anywhere. They must have written that song that says, I need thee, oh, I need thee every hour, I need thee. Because this is a person who realizes that daily, I need to draw deep from the wells of God. There's more that I need every day than I had when I woke up this morning. I need more. In verse 7, he said, blessed are the merciful. Where is that today? Merciful. Verse 8, he talks about blessed the pure in heart. Pure intentions, pure motives, no hypocrisy, no guile, no deceit. Just pure in heart. Verse 9, where are the peacemakers? Number 7. But he said, favored by God are those who are peacemakers. Not those who agitate, aggravate, argumentative, demand their rights and all. He said, blessed are the peacemakers. Remember Paul wrote, when it comes to being sued at law, it'd be better off for you just to take the whipping and leave and to get into it? Those are not the words the Bible uses. I'm breaking it down into Hamiltonese. We're not the kind of people that make a big noise in this world. We're Christians. We just trust that God will take care of us, that God will lead us, and God will guide us, and God will make a way for us. We don't even take vengeance. Vengeance belongs to God. If they smite us on one cheek, as this sermon says, we'll turn the other cheek to them. And for those who persecute us and call us names and belittle us or do worse to us, we will pray for them. And you know what? You don't find a handful of these people in your life, in your whole life. And I'm talking about your whole life of church life and all the people you knew in church. How many of you believe that inside of every human being, there is a something, we'll just call it a something, that tells you what's right and wrong. There are certain things you can mention in here, and immediately something rises up and says, that's right, and you're saying, shut up. Maybe it's divorce. Maybe it's remarriage. Maybe it's something else. There's a lot of things in here. Maybe it's being violent. Maybe it's anger. You just can't hardly control. You know, he deals with that too. And while you don't want it to be the way he says it is, you can't help but hear it, and that noise on the inside of you won't let you rest. But God made us this way because that's where our convictions come from. It's our conscience. Now, you keep resisting God, and your conscience will be seared. It'll no longer bother you. Church is full of people today. Sadly, a lot of them are getting old. Nothing bothers them anymore. You see all this trash going on in society today. You say, well, I grew up a long time ago, but it wasn't like it is today. And the language today and the vulgarity today, the little innuendos, what people call comedy today or funny today isn't funny unless it's full of bad words and sex. If you don't have a lot of that in it, either it won't sell or nobody will watch it. It's the day we're in. It's the hour that we're in. And it's in this hour, in that setting, that God brings us this. Because we're going to measure ourselves. It's like God's going to set a plumb line right in the middle of us. And we're going to see just exactly how he wants it. And then we're going to have to, inside there, that thing that's talking to us and yelling at us, we're going to have to decide, 
if we're going to make the turn, if we're going to get serious, or if we're going to deal with it or not. But that's how we live. We live by choices. God shows us the way. This is the way. And then he says, this is the way that I want you to live. And back in chapter 5 again, he says in verse 10, he said, favored are those who are persecuted because they're doing right. They're living right. They're talking right. They're making right decisions. And they're hated by society. And they're persecuted for it. Those who wouldn't go along with some evil plan or some evil design at work, wouldn't protest. That's not what Christians do. We didn't sign a petition against some government official. That's not what we do. Our kingdom is a different kingdom than the kingdom of this world. We live in both. And while a lot of the Sermon on the Mount has to do with the kingdom of heaven, it doesn't mean that the kingdom is here in the sense that Jesus said it would be. As his kingdom exists on this earth in us and amongst us now, he said there's wheat and tares in it. When the kingdom comes from heaven, there won't be anything in it but purity and cleanness and all of God. But while we're here, we're qualifying. Jesus said if you want to enter into life, there's a specific requirement you have to go by. I think a lot of people have made it real easy. I'm not trying to make it hard. I've had people say, that's too hard. Would you all agree with me that I didn't write any of this? That I had nothing to do with writing this. And I went to school just long enough that I can read most of it. I can't pronounce everything. I could, but I don't want you to think so. It's just like we don't know everything there is to know. But we know enough to understand that when God speaks to us, it doesn't matter how smart you are. God didn't save you because you're smart. Didn't save you because you're dumb. He saved you because he loved you. But he ain't going to leave you alone and leave you the way he is because if you don't change, he has to judge you. So he gives us a way to live, and this is what we want to find out, exactly what it is. So he begins in the Sermon on the Mount. The first 12 verses have to do with the Beatitudes or the principles of our character. Verses 13 through 16, he deals with the principles of influence, salt, and light. And these are the characteristics of how true Christians witness in this world. This is how people see us. If we have any influence, any Christian testimony or not. If we don't have a Christian testimony or influence wherever we are, hated or not, then we're like salt that's lost its savor. What good is it? I mean, an egg doesn't want it if it's no good. In Matthew five seventeen and... Matthew seven twenty nine, he talks about principles of conduct. Let's look at Matthew seven twenty nine first. Just want to read it. For it says, For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. We would probably say it today or understand it like this. Jesus was anointed in what he said, and it was the anointing that was upon him and on his words that caused those that heard those words to be affected by them. I think the word of the scribes, the way the scribes taught, would remind me a lot of being in college. I heard so much noise when I was in college, the droning of my professors. I did not have a clever mind or an eager mind to listen to all that, but I had to be there because it was college and my seminary professors were a little better, but not a whole lot. 
whatever seminary was. I never did make it. I probably would have benefited by some things that I really would have. But the conduct that God's talking about, look at these things in verse 17. Talking about your conduct toward other people, the relationship of the law to the principles that Jesus taught. Jesus said, I did not come to destroy the law. Well, then what do we do with the law? He tells us what a Christian's attitude towards the law should be. Now, most Christians don't have that attitude. As far as they're concerned, oh, that's law, that's over with and done. Well, you need to hear what he meant by that. We'll get to that sometime in the winter, probably. Verse 21 through 26, he talks about the principle concerning anger. An angry man will have a lot of trouble with God because God will not tolerate anger in his kingdom, the kingdom that is coming that he told us to pray about. In verse 17 through 30, we mentioned a while ago, he speaks about the principle concerning lust. Let me ask you a question. How much anger is in the world today? How many angry people can you think of? How much of what you read in the paper and all the violence, how much of it is just anger? Why is it that today with drugs, the people who do drugs in some form, why is it that amongst people that do drugs there's so much violence? Why is it that a man's mind is altered in such a way that he wants to reach out and say stuff and hurt people? You know, that's one of the signs of the end. In the days of Noah, remember that? As it was in the days of Noah. And the two things that were outstanding in Noah's day that brought judgment, which will happen again the same way, was violence and immorality. Immorality and violence. And you're seeing it today. Look at the video games. No video game has Sunday school flavor to it. It's all about killing it's all about harm and killing and name-calling. And it has to do with an angry spirit. People get angry today. People that can't rule their spirit, that can't control their temper or their words. They read this and they say, man, i got to do something about that. But they don't. Now, they know they should, but they don't. I'm sure some of them do. And lust, how much lust is there today? Lust is everywhere. Lust is consuming a generation. A generation is being consumed by it. Music today, music that so many kids listen to today is not only demeaning women, but what they're called. But it's all about lust and pleasure and satisfaction, personal satisfaction not realizing that God has condemned it by what he has said in the Bible and people with their eyes open, knowing that God's going to condemn it, do it anyway. Romans 1, that's what he said. Knowing that God will judge such things, they do it anyway. It's almost like there's a control, a controlling spirit. You're around it so much, you hear it so much. The way girls and boys dress today, it leaves nothing. There's no modesty anymore. Nobody blushes. And it's dealt with here in this sermon. And we all have to make decisions on what we're going to do with it, how we're going to live. Look at verse 31 and 32. 
How much of that is there in the world today? Divorce. Not just in the world. They say half the marriages in America end in divorce. Well, statistics show that in the church, half of Christians who marry wind up in divorce. They do it with their eyes open. Christians divorce, but they read in Malachi 2 that God hates it. But somebody has told them, well, if you can't get along and your life is going down, then you should do this and after all and after all and after all. And you'll find as we study that, it's not the easiest subject in here to teach on. But it's in here, and we're not going to run from it. You know, Jesus talked to Pharisees, and he said, the reason you all divorce is because Moses allowed it. But he said, from the beginning, when God joined them together, he said, from the beginning, it was not so. So that's where I'm going. His original statement, he said, it shall not be. And after all, what marriage problem can you have for which God has not given a solution? Every couple I've ever seen stand before me acted really like they liked each other. I'm talking just the look and the actions and the smile and all of that. It was just, whoo! Now, something has to happen down the road to end all of that. Somebody has to not trust God. Somebody has to be offended and being unwilling to surrender those feelings to God. And so you're told that, well, the way out of this is just, look, terminate it. Like one guy said one time, told his daughter she got married and she got divorced. He said, honey, just repent and get you another one. You might as well close your Bible. It doesn't mean anything. There comes a time I think men like that read anything in the Bible, anything they don't like gets kicked out. No conviction. No change. Never a choice they make. It just doesn't fit my lifestyle. doesn't fit the way I see it. Therefore. But God has much to say about that and much more than I just said. And so we'll deal with that too. And then in verse 33 through 37, he talks about taking the oath and swearing. And tells us that you just say yes or no. You're a Christian. And if you're a Christian, you tell the truth. Christians tell the truth. Don't you wish that would work? Shouldn't it be like that? I don't need to swear. I don't need to emphasize truth by saying I swear to heaven because Jesus said don't do that. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. I will tell the truth. And then in verse 38 through 48, it's about non-resistance. It's what love commands and what love compels a Christian to do. How you see your fellow man in spite of what he's doing, what your relationship and reaction to him should be. That's not easy either. Or in chapter 6, the first 18 verses of chapter 6 deal with three things. One is alms, verse 1 through 4, the giving of alms. I think the average Christian has the mentality when it comes to giving that the word tithe and offerings. You remember Malachi 2 talks about tithes and offerings? Tithes and offerings is two words. Some folks just say tithes and offerings. Bring your tithes and offerings like that's some really difficult English word. All of us have an obligation to give unto God. 
You can't give unto him, so he prescribes another way to give. Then there's times also that we are inspired by this work of the Spirit to give to somebody else beyond that. Just like the tabernacle in the wilderness, he told everybody that had been brought out of Egypt to bring them a redemption price. The rich shall give no more, the poor shall give no less. Everybody should bring it. They all had enough. And a million people pitch in the little bit that they had, and then they had free will offerings. And those who wanted to give more gave more, and they had enough to build everything that God ever wanted. They didn't have to borrow a dime because it was in their heart to surrender whatever God wanted that they had. As the Spirit prompted them, they were willing to give it. Then we hear he talks about alms giving to the poor. You know how God feels about the poor. You read Psalm 41. Has pity on the poor. Proverbs says, gives to the poor, you lend to the Lord, and the Lord shall repay you. God, I imagine, would pay you back more than you gave when you give to the poor. But it's often a test. It's often a test. He told the rich young ruler, sell all that you have and give it to the poor. He probably was very critical of the poor, had no respect or regard For poor people, he looked down on people who were probably, in his eyes, less than he was. And he deserved what he got, and they probably deserved what they got. And he wasn't about to give what he worked hard for to somebody that he didn't think worked at all. But that's the nature of his heart. That's what Jesus dealt with. How many of you know he went away sad? But not all rich people are asked to give up whatever they have. You know, there was Zacchaeus. Remember Zacchaeus? Little fellow. He had to climb up a tree to see Jesus. Jesus said, come down, I want to eat in your house today. I guess we can still do that. And he did, and he said, while they read, whatever I've wrongly taken from people, I'm going to restore fourfold, and so forth. You know what Jesus said to him? He said, today, salvation has come to your house. It was in his heart. It's all about your heart, where your heart is, what your heart promotes in you to do. Another thing he dealt with in chapter 6, the next section, was about prayer. About prayer. He said, teach us how to pray. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth. What does that mean? Well, we'll talk about that for sure. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the third thing he talked about in verse 16 through 18 was something that very few Christians ever, ever do. is fast. Seldom ever do Christians fast. I remember a preacher in my past. He's dead now, but a long time ago, I think he had asked me what I had been preaching on, and I said something about fasting. He said, oh, my. He said, oh, my. He said, I don't think I could do that. Now, this was a fundamental premillennial fighting preacher, one of those us-onlys. And he looked at poor little souls like me and the rest of us in these big cathedrals we're in. Of course, I'm thinking there's little to know. It's an easy word to pronounce, fasting. It simply has to do with denying yourself food for the purpose of seeking God. It's not hard to understand. But so many people's body rules them. It's hard to offer your body without spot to God when your body masters your will. And it demands food, and it demands drink, or it demands anything. And if you can't control your body, then your body controls you. 
and therefore you're in trouble. In Romans 12:1, how can you present your body a living sacrifice when your body can't take it? It could if you would compel it to. But we don't like to deny ourselves anything, especially when you're on a fast one day and you drive by Joel's barbecue. Because, you know, barbecue's tough to pass up. And boy, there's that, oh. But it's all about the issue of your heart. God knows how we are. He knows how we're made. But he also knows that we must be in control. That if you cannot master your body, how is God going to master you? If you can't surrender your appetite to God, or your I gotta have it, I gotta have it, if you can't surrender that to God, well, we'll deal with that whenever it comes up. 619, attitudes and conduct regarding possessions, anxiety, and criticism. And look at verse 19 through 24. It says that Christ here forbids covetousness. Where do you not see covetousness today? How many times do we covet after things and we go into debt in order to have things? We run that card up because we've got to have something. It's a form of lust. And the thing becomes an idol. You gotta have it. And when you got it, oh, come and see it. Come and see it. God forbids that. The second thing he mentions here is that Christ forbids in verse 25 through 34, he forbids sinful anxiety. Take no thought for your life, for your life, for your life. And most people treasure their life. Their life is the focus of their life. We put so much emphasis on our life as though it's ours. Do you all realize that if you're a Christian, you have been purchased by God and you belong to him? Are we not his purchased possession? It says in 1 Corinthians that we are bought with the price and essentially you're no longer your own, you're God's. And how often do we so concern ourselves and worry ourselves about what belongs to God? He said, take no thought for your life. Take no thought for what you put on. Take no thought for your clothing. And that principle is not just for those few things he mentions there, but in principle, anything in this life that you're going to worry about and be tore up about falls under this heading of sinful anxiety. The reason we worry about things is because we don't know what God's solution is. If we do know what God's solution is, then the reason we worry is because we will not believe what God said. Again, this is one of those statements that makes the heart go, oh, that's so hard. It's not hard. It is not hard. It is truth. How many of you know that the Word of God is not burdensome. And for the 2,000th time in my life, when we think the Word of God is hard, too demanding, and, oh, I don't know if I can do that, it just identifies our relationship with the world. The way the world has connected itself with us is something that God says we have to break from, and to think that we're not going to have this or have that to fall back on, 
like that rich man and all of his money. If he gave up all of his money, what's he going to have? He can't trust God. He just wanted to add God to his equation. What would we have if God asked us to forsake all and leave? What would we do? What if the government, and I don't know what the government's going to do, and neither do they, but if the government said, we're going to take everything you Christians have, if you don't change your beliefs, would you still profess Christ? You're troublemakers in this world. We could get this mark of the beast rolling pretty good if you all wouldn't be so stuck on Scripture. Who knows what they're going to do? Would you still profess Christ if you couldn't buy or sell anymore? How would you eat? How would you pay your rent? You wouldn't get to own a house. You couldn't buy gas. Couldn't pay for your car. Money would not do anything. You got to have the mark in this world, the world system to obtain, buy and sell or do trade. And you won't take it. What are you going to do? Will the ravens feed you? Will God provide a way or can he only provide a way if you've got a mark? You know what? Let me tell you something. We can talk about faith until the cows come back to the house. And for so many people, it's not registering that one day this may be all we have or you're going to have to turn back. I mean, it's a challenge. You'll see it. It's in here. I'll show you that when we get to it. Christ forbids also in chapter 7, 1 through 6, the expression of a critical spirit towards others. Oh, my You better turn off Rush. And you know what? I grew up critical. All those years I was a basketball coach, the whole thing about coaching has to do with criticism. You can't coach without being critical. I couldn't. I couldn't bring a scouting report back to my team without criticizing some of the other players. And then when I criticized, I lied. I said we were better than they are. I've told some of my team, little poor little things sitting there, and I said, you know, you all put your pants on the same way they do. You eat way the same way they do. Drink the same things that they drink, and you go to school like they go. You're as good as they are. It had to be proven it was wasn't. But you point out faults. Now, this guy here, he can't, and you're better, and and blah, 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 blah. And then you get offended by what somebody said to you, or some boy wouldn't. Look at you, some girl liked another boy, so you start criticizing the other person because it's a personal attack. Everything becomes personal. And when everything becomes personal to you and everybody's against you, then you become critical. You become a backbiter. You become a gossip. Because we have a hard time in our hearts of being, let me tell you something, it's a big deal in this world today, is being rejected. Being rejected. Not wanted. Inferiority. If you feel like you're inferior, you know, I grew up, I stuttered. Stuttered my whole life. I did. I felt inferior to the people around me that uh, didn't. I didn't act inferior all the time, but I did because I wouldn't like that. I couldn't talk the way they talked. I couldn't carry on a conversation like they did. I didn't want to speak out in class a lot because... It'd take me longer to say what I wanted to say than it would a normal person. And you begin to go in a little zone. You just kind of withdraw, and this insecurity comes. Then you feel like people don't like you. You go through all of this stuff. 
and people run to psychologists to get rid of that. All you need is deliverance. To get a believer to lay hands on you and rebuke that thing, it'll come out. Unless you like it. And if you like it, you get to keep it. Another thing in chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, this is one of the toughest ones. Chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Let me read it. Enter in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way which leads to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leads to life, and few there be that find it. Is that true? Think for a moment before we get back to where we started tonight. How many Christians do you think perhaps know there even is a gate? That in order for me, as Jesus said, towards the end of the sermon, sort of a conclusion, we'll bring our concluding remarks, that if you want to enter into life, and he came to give life, he said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. If you want life, you have to go through a gate. It's not a broad gate. It's not a gate that anybody can go through because, well, I go to church, I've been baptized, I'm a member in good standing, and I sing whatever, and I have good intentions, and, oh, I cry sometimes, I'm just so sorry. I'm not talking about people that feel despondent and gloomy and doomy and mess up all the time. I'm talking about the gate is narrow. There's a whole lot of dumb trash in our life we can't take with us. you got to get rid of it on this side. And like Bonnie said today, she said, most people don't even know there is such a gate. Because Christianity has been made just raise your hand, come forward, sign a card, get baptized or something, and therefore you are on the other side. They didn't say that. You know, people who have said about some of us, probably me more than you, you know, you're all making Christianity too hard. I don't think God intended for it to be hard like that. Well, I could turn around and say, you've made it too easy. It means nothing to people that have to live the way you're describing. You don't have to repent. You don't have to walk in a certain way. You don't have to be holy. There's no need to love your neighbor as yourself because if I had to do that, then it would be by works. And therefore, if I have to do anything, then you're saying it's not by faith anymore. And they never thought to ask the question, like in James chapter 2, can you have what you call faith without evidence of it? What we do follows what we believe. If you live loose, you believe loose. If you live angry, you believe angry. I don't care what you've heard or where you go. These three chapters in the Bible, as I've said, are the deeper life portion of the New Testament as it is found in nowhere else in a section of Scripture. It's the longest discourse of Jesus in the Bible. These three chapters, 111 verses here in these three chapters, is the longest single part in the Bible where Jesus taught her in the New Testament. And then in chapter 7, verse 15 through 21, he warns us about deception. In the last days, there's going to be all kinds of deception. As I've said to you more than once, don't believe it because I've said it. I am nobody's conscience. 
I am called as best I can understand to do what I'm doing. I cannot make anybody believe. I cannot make anybody see. I cannot open anybody's eyes. That is entirely the work of God. All I can do is to have my own convictions, call upon God to enable me to speak his word and speak it. Now, what you do with it is between you and God. you believe that? Therefore, you can't blame the preacher. Ah, that preacher. Now, we will come under greater condemnation than you will because there's a lot of deceiving preachers in this world. Lots and lots and lots and lots. People who want your money, who want your approval, who will act any way they have to act for people to think, Woo, this one is something else. No, he's not. No, he's not. He's making money, but he'll perish. Because you folks are sheep, aren't you? Sheep need to be led. They need to be guided and steered in the right direction. It's not like a human shepherd is your conscience. There is a great shepherd of the sheep. His name is Jesus. And the purpose of ministry is to point you to him so that your convictions are based on what he says and your repentance is not to a man but to God. And the soul that gets searched gets searched because the light of his word shines in your heart. I mean, you've got to deal with stuff in your life. You can't say, well, I need to go where there's... You need to get a hold of God and dive into what we call this personal relationship, this secret place of the Most High, where there is communion between a man and God. And that's where you begin to live the life and settle all your whatevers. The conclusion is in Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27, and it is simply this, obey his word. You build your house on sand, you build your house on a rock, but you're going to build one. You're going to build one. You can take your chances now, and ah, it don't matter. It don't. Well, you do that, and you'll wish you had This is not an easy life to live. It's not a cheap life. It's going to cost us something. Few, Jesus said, few, F-E-W, few there be that enter through this narrow gate. And if there's one verse in the Sermon on the Mount, that describes this as well as the entire Old Testament. One verse in the Sermon on the Mount that is the epitome of what the Bible says, how God speaks to his people is chapter 7 and verse 12. And you all have heard it. Therefore, all things whatsoever you would that men should do to you, even do ye so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Five books of Moses, the law. The prophets, all those prophets in the Old Testament, all those inspired men, the things that God penned through those men, and the Torah, the first five books of Moses. The message was this. You do to other people what you would want other people to do to you. Let God have that kind of place in your life that God leads you and guides you to love others besides yourself, to do unto others what you want other people to do to you. But this is what the whole thing's about. This is what it's all about. You wouldn't need an army. You wouldn't need a jail. You wouldn't need policemen. What 
would the world be like if we did that? What would it be like if we did unto others like we would have others to do unto us? We would never take something somebody else had. We would never lie to anybody else. We would never cheat anybody else. We'd never deceive anybody. Never. Because we get so tore up when people do that to us. People steal from you, rob your home or rob your possessions. Slander your name, gossip about you, call you names. What if nobody ever did that anymore? There'll be a time like that that that's going to happen during the millennium. When the devil will be bound and all that influence will be bound. But this is what it's about. Would to God that when we get to the end of our lives, the effect of this message, among the many other things the Bible says, but these three chapters, Sermon on the Mount, that the effect that they would have upon us would make us like that. Loving people. Gentle, kind, meek, merciful, caring, thoughtful, tender-hearted, loving people. Is that what God is doing to us? Or are we supposed to be out here with our sleeve rolled up talking about God, guns, and guts made America? Not at all. While we live in this world, we are citizens of another world. Let me go back to where I started tonight. When Jesus finished his teaching in Matthew seven twenty-eight, when he finished these things that we just outlined, the Bible says the people who heard him were astonished. They were astonished. They'd never heard a man talk like that. Have any of you that ever grew up in a Sunday school atmosphere like I did? I grew up in a blase Christian. I was in a Christian church. I didn't really believe anything. I didn't have to. You just join and do what you're told. Now, I was aware, I was keenly aware in my young heart that there were things in the Bible that I didn't understand, but it sure make you think. Nobody ever talks about it, but I can't help thinking about it. But it never really meant anything to me. I never was ruled by it. Never really did care that much about it. You know, never did just cave into it. But one day when it was time for me to come to the Lord and be saved, I heard somebody use Christian words that had a whole different impact on my life. Is it possible for you one day to have your ears open and hear something you'd never heard? Well, you've heard it before, but never heard it like you heard it. These people had heard these Pharisees and these scribes and the teachers. They had heard them drone on about thou shall not, thou shall not. And you could tell by their lives, Jesus pointed them out. He said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You're a bunch of whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you look pretty. That's not his word. That's mine. Not a man's word either, but he said, on the outside, you look nice. But on the inside, you're nasty. You're unclean. You're dirty. You're a deceiving, conniving soul. You don't mean anything you say. You're like those folks Isaiah spoke about. You honor me with your words, but your heart is somewhere else. But you look good, and people think you're good. And they follow you because, whoa. And when Jesus came along and he spoke, these simple things, the people were astonished. They went, wow. I can remember in my own life, 
back when cassette tapes just hit the scene of getting one every now and then, and I'd heard sermons most of my life again, but now I heard something in a different way, and I was astonished. I remember a time or two I had to listen to the tape. I should have taped my mouth so flies wouldn't fly in there because I'm sitting there listening, going, going. You know why I was astonished? Because I became more aware of what God wanted from me than I ever had before, and I wondered if it was possible. See, there are folks who think, well, the Sermon on the Mount is not for today. Matthew's book has a Jewish flavor to it, and it was written more to the Jewish mind and mindset than anything else because Matthew was Jewish. And so he wrote primarily to the Jewish people. That's why in his book he talks more about the mechanics of divorce than the other books do, Mark or Luke. Because a Jew would understand certain things where people that weren't under law wouldn't see it that way. And so as he gives forth his word and as he begins to share these kind of things, people's eyes were getting opened. He does it to us. Things jump off the page at you. Have you had that happen yet? Have you ever heard something in a way you had never heard it before and been bothered by it? Well, we've been here 30 years in one day. I hope you've been bothered by something, all of us. I like to think that of all the many opportunities that we've had to meet in this room, we've been here a long time, that all the times we've met here that God has met us here, I like to think that that some specifically deep, profound things have come to us. And every time they come to us, it's like this is the way walking in it. No options. Not a suggestion. This is his word. World leaders have discussed the Sermon on the Mount because of its moralness. Gandhi supposedly read the Sermon on the Mount every day. I don't know that he did that, but I've read that somewhere. And the world has noted that at least in the New Testament in these three chapters, that this is a high-class, high-caliber moral code of life, but the world knows clearly that Christians don't believe it. The whole world knows that we don't, we, I say we editorially, that we don't believe this. When you read the Beatitudes, how many Christians do you know that live with those particular characteristics in their life? How many of us swear, take the oath, to save our hides? Or take somebody to court and sue them. Or we get our lawyer to defend our case and... Or divorce. How many awful things are said in divorce by Christians? How many threats are made by... I'll tell you one thing, girl or guy, you'll wish you hadn't. How many times has that happened? It's like we have heard this. We have read this, let's say, for 30 years, and yet the evidence of it working in our life, you can't find it. See, I could ask the question to me and to you, what's wrong with us? See, we're guilty. You can say, well, the world hadn't heard it. Well, we have. We've heard it. What are we going to do with it? How about worry? Do we worry? Do Christians worry? We talk worry. Well, I don't know. I'm, I'm worried about that. Well, don't worry about it. Somebody said just the other day, don't worry about it. I said, I don't worry about anything like that. And hopefully I don't worry about anything at all. Jesus said it's wrong to worry. If you watch the evening news, you'll get at least two 
worry pills. And it all begins with some gloomy little something over in the corner. And now, folks, when people are there in this kind of anxiety, it ain't funny. And I don't mean to mock them. I'm just saying that there's this look on their faces. It's acted. They're actors. They're paid to do this. And I'm not paid to say this. So looks like I win. And then you get this drug. And you take this drug and then you feel like getting up in the morning and saying, Woo! Hooray! Until you get to the end of the commercial. And then the side effects are liver disease, cancer, your head will fall off, and all kinds of things. You know, all this kind of stuff. And I think, why in the world would you take something that makes you smile, but it destroys the rest of you? Well, the next commercial break, they'll give you one for that. And you get two of them. One will make you smile and one will make you calm down. It's like people have never read the Bible. See, God has a remedy for anxiety. It's not in some psychologist or psychiatrist's office or some Christian psychiatry. It's not where it is. The answer is Jesus. The answer is in this book. But the problem is that Christians don't know how or they don't want to believe it. They don't want to exercise faith and walk through this valley and hold fast to this difficulty and go through the time of testing and sifting until it goes away because there's an aspirin somewhere that you can get out of it and be done with it. Oh, years ago, back when my hair was brown, people would make fun of sometimes we talk about divine healing. When all you have to do is say, why don't you just take two aspirins and be done with it? And we walked it out anyway, had this look on our face, and people said, I don't believe, I don't know about all that stuff. And now here we are 40 years later, we don't have that stuff, and they still need their aspirins. Listen, deliverance is better than a temporary healing anytime. And we should be delivered. The Bible promises us that. He bore our pains and carried our sorrows, and by his stripes we were healed. I don't know how many people believe it, but it's done. He doesn't have to do it again. He's not going to do it again. He's already done it. How much non-resistance and defending and fighting is there in the world today amongst Christians? You ever heard of a church split? I was in one, two, three or four. Yeah, <laughs> I've been through a bunch of splits. It's just two people can't get along, don't want to get along. I'm not going to keep my mouth shut. Ain't nobody going to walk over me. I'll be in your face. That attitude, that thing comes out of your heart. It shows up in testings. And you look back and you're ashamed of yourself because that wasn't the way to deal with that. But that just shows you where the church is. Until we get taught and until this, how do you say this? Until this word is just jammed down our throat, we're going to act like that. Jesus is very serious tonight, brothers and sisters, about what he has to say and what he wants from us. Let me conclude this little introduction to the sermon give you a chance whether you want to come back or hear it or not, but let me give you these few things about what the sermon teaches specifically. One, it teaches total faith and absolute trust. You can't do it without that. You'll have to trust God. You cannot fix your problems. God can. You'll have to trust Him to do that.
Secondly, in order for you to live by the Sermon on the Mount, there had to be uncompromising commitment. As he said in verse 13 and 14 that we read a while ago, to enter in at the straight gate, wide is the gate. You're going to have to be committed now, looking ahead to the day that you don't know when your day's coming. None of us do. But when your day comes, you've got to be ready. The gate is narrow by design. And we have to be ready. There has to be uncompromising commitment. And thirdly, there has to be pure motives. No deceit, no play acting, no going through all the motions of how much I love you, Lord. You can do all that stuff you want to, but how many of you know that God sees the heart? And if the heart is not right, let me tell you something. If the heart isn't right in whatever we're doing, then whatever we're doing is in vain. It's for nothing. Okay, how loud you sing? How pretty you sing. La, da, 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 da. I don't care. It's the heart. It has to be done because I love Jesus. I want to sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. His eyes on the sparrow. And I know he watches me and he loves me and he keeps me. All these years. All these years. Not so bad. I've had it easier than most people I've ever known. But the only way it's ever worked is because when he changes the heart, he blesses your life. He does. And then he talks about, fourthly, you got to have, in like in chapter 5, verse 21 and following, these deeper principles have to work in your life. Things like he said in verse 21, you've heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not kill. Then he talks about verse 22, being angry. Verse 23, bringing your gift to the altar and then remembering it. You made somebody mad. It was your fault. But you go to them and tell them you're sorry. Before you deal with God, you deal with them. He holds us to this. And we have to have a heart. The Sermon on the Mount teaches this. But how can we overemphasize chapter 5, verse 48? Would you look at that in closing? Chapter 5 and verse 48. For this is where he will leave us before we get to chapter 6. Be ye therefore. Does your Bible say therefore? Now, does therefore mean in light of what was just said, therefore? As a result of these preceding things we said in chapter 5, we come to this. And I think that the average... Christian today would look at chapter 5 and verse 48 and say there's no possible way. Well, then if it's not possible, then we're being deceived. Now, if it is possible, then it is for us to set ourselves in agreement with God and say, I can be what God says I can be. I cannot make myself like that, but God who started this work in me will what? We'll finish it. So who's going to do it? God is. And if God is going to do it, then all he needs from me is my will. My will. God's word directs me to God. If my thumb was God's word, and I keep it ever before me, this is the way that God wants me to live. I won't live this way unless I'm willing. If my hand was my will, what God wants is for me to take him at his word and trust him for the results. 
My faith will never make the word of God true because the word of God is forever true whether I believe it or not. But my faith brings me into a walk with God where I find his approval. And blessed is that. You walk in the way that he has called you. And like he said in Psalm 23, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Thy rod and thy staff, signs of his power and might, they comfort me. And what does he end it by saying? Surely, surely goodness and mercy, my two buddies, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And when it's over, I will dwell in the house of the Lord. Now, what more could a man want? The trail that leads you there, you can find it in three chapters. It's amplified in other places because that's not all there is in the Bible. It's three chapters. But you won't find anything more profound in all of Scripture put together in one spot. You won't find anything more profound than the Sermon on the Mount. You will be challenged. Your heart will snag at you. It'll grab a hold to something on the inside of you and give you a chance at least one more time in your life to make a decision. That's the biggest decision you can make, and that's whether you want to please God and do it his way or whether you, I don't know about that, I ain't ready for that, then you may never hear it again. But it's your choice. Wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be nice when Jesus comes, when he looked at the likes of us? Look at y'all. If when the Lord came, he looked at us and he said, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joys of your Lord. Wouldn't that be good? To a preacher, you know what would be good? Like he said in 1 Timothy 4, if you will give yourself to the word, to doctrine or teaching, if you'll meditate in these things, watch how you live and everything. If you will teach this to people, he said, you shall not only save by this is the way it happens. You should not only save yourself, but all those that hear you. Well done, Shelby Town. Well done. Just stay with it. Amen. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask you to continue to bless us, open our eyes, illumine us, lead us, guide us, convict us, deliver us. Show us, make us, cause us anything and everything that has to be done. In spite of our weaknesses and our flaws and our feelings, our background, our lives, where we came from, all the wrongs done to us, everything. Lord, your people have so many scars, so many scars. They've been abandoned. They've been molested. They've been turned out, hated, and you brought these people to you, Lord. Not to leave them like that, but to pour this word in them. And as you said in Paul's writing, you're going to sanctify and cleanse your church with the washing of water by the word till it is without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing. Us, people like us. Only you can do such a thing. 
We ask you tonight to continue doing this work. Give us a heart that will embrace your word. Anoint our ears. Continue to lead us and guide us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.